I want you to imagine that God has a cosmic scale upon which He will weigh our lives. And in our Bible story today, God says that He weighs Belshazzar's life and finds him wanting. God judges Belshazzar to be a spiritual lightweight. And how will he judge my life? How will he judge your life? So, think about if, if upon this scale, this cosmic scale, God were to place everything that we've done for him with our lives. So, uh, you know, every time you have said no to a temptation that's actually calling to you and, and there's a part of you that, that wants to, and you say no because you want to please God. Uh, every time you raise your hand and you, you say, hey, I will volunteer and serve the purposes of God in the world. Every time you write a check and you say, I'm going to fund the work of God, fund the gospel going out. Uh, every time you worship the Lord with sincerity of heart, every time you pray and you, rather than deal with your problems on your own, you take them to God and you say, God, uh, I cast this anxiety upon you, this concern on you. You're capable. I trust you. Every time you surrender your will, right? Every time you do good in order to please God. All of that gets piled on the cosmic scale. What's it going to read? Will God say, whoa, well done, good and faithful servant. I gave you one talent, you, you turned it into two. I gave you two, you turned it into four. I gave you five, you turned it into ten. Way to use your life. The, the life I gave you, the resources I gave you, the time I gave you, the influence I gave you, the power I gave you, you leveraged it for good. You did not waste your life. You spent it in a worthy manner. Your life is weighty in my eyes. That's what we want, right? We, we don't want to hear, like Belshazzar, I have weighed you in my scales and found you wanting. Well, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Daniel chapter 5. We are in a series on the book of Daniel. If you miss any of the sermons, you can catch up online at clearwater.church. And today, we learn about King Belshazzar. Chapter 5 starts, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Now, who's King Belshazzar? He just sort of comes to us with no introduction at all. Uh, we've been learning about King Nebuchadnezzar. We've had lots of stories about Nebuchadnezzar and uh, how God slowly was revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar. And then that in chapter 4, there was the dramatic humbling of Nebuchadnezzar where God actually had him go, took his reason away, and he went off and ate grass like an ox but when he was finally willing to lift his eyes to the Lord and humble himself, God returned to sanity, returned his throne. And chapter 4 is, go back and look at it. Chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. It's an open letter to the nations. 
Remember, he ruled over the greatest empire in the world at that time, and he writes this letter, and he sends it out to, uh, to all the peoples in his empire telling them about what God has done for him. It's basically, let me tell you how God humbled me, and now how I, uh, how I praise and honor and bless the most high God, the true God. Well, what's happened is we have, from chapter 4 to chapter 5, we instantly fast forward a couple decades and we're actually uh, talking about the, f- the last king of Babylon, that mighty empire, and the very last day of the empire. It's a pretty amazing story. Belshazzar is referred to in the Bible as, uh, or Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's father. More probably, that's more, uh, referring to him as ancestor. Uh, We're not even sure that Belshazzar was a a blood descendant, but certainly a descendant of the throne. Historians, actually, up until, well, sometime in the 1900s, they actually doubted that Belshazzar was a true historical character because uh, he wasn't referred to in the writings of uh, um, Herodotus or some of the other Greeks who talked about uh, the Babylonian Empire. And so they thought, okay, the Bible's just made up this character for a good story. However, uh, the cylinder of Nabonidus was found in the 1900s, and in that cylinder, Nabonidus is one of the last kings of of the Babylonians, he refers to his son Belshazzar, his eldest son Belshazzar. So Nabonidus was actually the the last king of the empire. Nabonidus was his son, so why does the Bible refer to Belshazzar as king? Here's what historians believe. Nabonidus was a follower of the moon god, Sin. Uh, He was an avid, ardent worshiper of Sin, and he, he was pushing the worship of Sin on the Babylonians, and they didn't like that. Uh, Marduk was their god, right? The the historic, traditional, um, big god in Babylon was Marduk. And so there's this whole priestly caste, and all of their power and money is tied to the worship of Marduk, and they didn't like Nabonidus trying to change things. So uh, historians believe that there was sort of this truce brokered where Nabonidus said, fine, I'll go uh, make my headquarters in Tima, and then I can worship sin all I want to over there. Um, and that was a couple hundred miles away near Edom. And my son Belshazzar will rule the city of Babylon in my stead. And so that was the case for about 10 years up until the fall of the empire. So Belshazzar was, uh, was king. It, he was the ruler of Babylon. And actually, at this time, it's very possible that Nep- that when this day happened, Nabonidus had died because the Medo-Persian army had already conquered Tima and uh, dealt with, and Nabonidus had fled, but he died sometime that year. And so it's very possible, certainly Nabonidus has fled and is nowhere to be uh, found and might even be dead at that time. Okay, so there's Belshazzar. Belshazzar is the final king of the Babylonian empire on its very last day. And, and Belshazzar makes a great feast. 
And, two, and he invites all of his lords. His wives are there. His concubines are there. And you've got to ask, why in the world is he partying when the Medo-Persian army is outside the gates? Because certainly they were. They, in fact, later that night, they conquer the city of Babylon, and we know how they did that. By diverting the Nile River, which ran right through Babylon. They diverted the river into a basin, and it lowered the water level enough that the, the, the special forces could go under the city walls where the river had been flowing. And uh, they did that in the cover of the night, and they came out uh, into the city and caught everybody by surprise. In fact, this banquet, we're going to find out, this banquet ends with the Medo-Persian Empire uh, swords drawn, capturing or capturing the city. So why in the world is uh, Belshazzar partying while his city's besieged? And I, and I think it's because it's it's a it's a display of of great hubris. He's trying to present an image of I'm in control and I'm unafraid. Yeah, we got these Medo Persians army outside the gates, but but I'm not worried. And there was human reason to not be worried. Uh, the walls of Babylon were enormous. In fact, I've got a picture here of the uh, Ishtar gates. And these, those are the gates, some of the gates of Babylon. And that's in uh, Berlin, in one of the museums of Berlin, Pergamum Museum, I believe. Look how large those are. And those are the gates. And Babylon actually had three sets of walls. There was the outer wall, the, the middle wall, and the inner wall. And so even if the Medo-Persian army was to get through the outer gates, they had to get through the middle gates, they had to get through the inner gates. Babylon had massive stores of food because they were prepared for a siege. So they, had, they, they could last for a long time. And the Nile River ran right through Babylon itself. And so they had all the water they needed. So they were prepared for a siege. And so I think this party that Belshazzar throws is a way to say, I'm not afraid. We're still uh, going to be fine. We're, we're in control here. Uh, our mighty strength, our god Marduk will take care of us. Verse 2, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. I'm convinced that Belshazzar had the sacred vessels of the temple of God brought, not because he was wanting some pretty goblets from which to party, but as a way of saying, I'm not afraid of the god of Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not afraid of the God of the Jews. Uh, I trust in Marduk to take care of us. And it is very possible, I would say even probable, that Belshazzar knew about the prophecy that 
the prophet Isaiah had made many years earlier, which said Babylon would fall and even named Cyrus as the one who would conquer Babylon even before Cyrus was ever born. And Cyrus was the king uh, of the Persians at this time. And so I think that what's happening is Belshazzar is, uh, in addition to throwing a party, he says, bring out those sacred vessels from the Jewish God, and we're going to drink from them as an act of defiance. I'm not afraid of you, and we're going to actually desecrate these by, by uh, praising other gods from them. And so they're toasting, right? They've got the, 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 the holy cups from the temple of God, and, and rather than honoring God with them, they're drinking and saying, praise Marduk. You know, praise Enlil, Enki, Inanna, Nabu. They had, they had a whole pantheon of gods, even though Marduk was the top. So here's the question that you got you know, at this point you have to ask Is Belshazzar justified in being self confident and confident in, uh, in, his, in, in the Babylonian pagan way of life in the worship of Marduk? And, and I think that he's got, um, I think that he's got, he's been told uh, by probably those priests of Marduk, listen, you know, who's gotten us this far? We are the most powerful people on the planet. And uh, we went head to head with the God of Jerusalem years ago, and we, we defeated him. And who's, it's been our ways, it's been our God that's gotten us this far. There's no reason to turn your back on that. Be confident. We're the mighty. We are the mighty Babylonians. And so I think that's what he's saying with this feast and with this uh, drinking from the vessels of God. He's saying, uh, I am confident in our way. I'm confident in our strength. And uh, we don't need to submit to anyone or any other God. So was Belshazzar justified? And, and what about all those people that you know? You go to work with them, you go to school with them, you live next door to them, all those people who say, uh, I don't need Jesus in my life. I'm, I'm confident that I can handle life on my own, in my own way. And fine if, uh, you know, if you need Jesus as a crutch to get through life, is if, if that Christianity stuff works for you, great, but I don't need it. You might, but I don't. Are people uh, justified in their, in their confidence apart from Christ? Well, verse 5, we read this. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Historians uh, or archaeologists have uncovered what they think was the throne room of the Babylonian Empire. And they have actually found plaster of Paris in the rubbles. And so they know that some of the walls were made out of plaster. And so this kind of disembodied hand of God is writing on the plaster wall. And I, I like the picture. There's a lampstand, and that lampstand would have been casting light against the wall so that Belshazzar could see the fingers 
and see the writing. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. He's afraid. And, and you have to ask, why did he automatically assume that this spelled something bad for him? Why would he not have thought Marduk was writing on the wall saying, I'm with you, you're going to win. Re take courage. Well, I think it's his conscience, and I think he knew. <laughs> I, had, I just poked my finger in the eye of the God uh, of the Jews. And now all of a sudden, the God that I had heard had humbled Nebuchadnezzar is, there's this hand writing on the wall. I think he knew he was in trouble. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. Called loudly. Ah! He probably screamed in terror. The king, the king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. By the way, before people believed, or before historians knew of Belshazzar, they thought, why in the world would he make, offer the third place in the kingdom? That doesn't make sense. Why wouldn't he have just offered the second place in the kingdom? Well, now it makes sense because there was Nabonidus in the picture. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. What is that, the fourth time so far in Daniel that these supposed wise men keep failing? Uh, they keep, when confronted with the, with the acts of the real God... They have no power. They have no understanding. They're powerless to help. And listen, the wisdom of the world is limited. And, but when it really matters, the stuff that really matters, the stuff of eternal consequence, the wisdom of the world fails flat because these people don't actually know God. And they can't help you. And the wisdom of the world can't help you when it comes to how do I have a right relationship with God? How do I get my sins forgiven? What happens to me after I die? How can I go to heaven and not hell? For that, you need Jesus. You need the revelation of the Bible. And so once again, they, they fail. They can't help. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. So he went from being alarmed to being greatly alarmed, which I find interesting. Uh, when his wise men can't help, he gets even more afraid because he realizes this is outside of our control, outside of our understanding, therefore outside of our control. Verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the kings and his lords, came into the banqueting hall and the queen declared. Now, who's this queen? Remember, Belshazzar's wives and concubines are already in, in the party. So, historians do believe that this was a, the queen mother. And probably it was Nebuchadnezzar's wife. And she's not a part of the banquet, but she hears about what's happening, and she comes in to give some advice. So, probably this is Nebuchadnezzar. Now, he's died, but this was his queen, his wife. She declares, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Don't be a scaredy cat. 
There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now, let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Get the impression that the queen has very high regard for Daniel. Uh, She thinks very highly of him. Belshazzar and apparently all the current rulers have forgotten Daniel, but she hasn't. And nor has God, by the way. You know, in in the capital, who is God most aware of, takes most notice of Daniel, even though the world has moved, moved on. And he's been sort of put out to pasture. He's an old man now. He's obviously not part of the inner circle of power. But God has not forgotten him, nor has this queen mother. And because she's, if she is Nebuchadnezzar's wife, then she might very well be a God-fearer. She might very well have a personal relationship with Daniel. It's, It's interesting that although she knows that his given name is Belshazzar, she refers to him as Daniel, his Hebrew name. And it's very possible this, this queen mother who would have seen Nebuchadnezzar go through his personal spiritual revival and, and um, humble himself before the Lord God, it could be that she's a God-fearing woman. And she's now counseling Belshazzar, turn to Daniel and find out what's going on. Verse 13, then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, "Uh, you're that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I think he's sort of putting Daniel in his place. Uh, you're, You're one of those captured people, right? I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now, the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this warning, or this writing, sorry, to read this writing, and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation in the manner. But I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, by the way, it's interesting how he's, well, I've heard about you, I've heard of you, now if you can... Right? There's sort of a skepticism, a doubt, a, an emotional distance. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. And nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. What a response. I don't need your money, king. Keep it for yourself. Give it to somebody else. I don't want you paying me for this. And why? I I think it's because Daniel knows I'm about to function as a prophet, and I'm going to speak the judgment of God upon you. So I don't work for you. I'm about to work for God himself. And so you keep your money. I don't want to be 
beholden to you. I don't want to be influenced by you. I'm working for God. And so as a preacher, I look at this and I say, hey, um, it's a reminder that even though you pay my salary, thank you very much, appreciate it greatly, yay to you, um, when I'm preaching, it's God, to, it's God I'm answering to. I can't tickle your ears so that you'll put some more coins in the offering box, right? Uh, I, must, I must deliver faithfully the Word of God to the people of God. So here he goes, O King, the Most High God. Now this is interesting. From verses 18 to 23, uh, Daniel explains to Nebuchadnezzar why the writing on the wall came about. Uh, he doesn't actually interpret until we get to verse 24 to 28. So there's this whole preamble, and the preamble is saying, I'm going, I'm going to explain to you, Belshazzar, why the hand of God has written uh, on the wall about you. And, and bottom line, he's saying, it's because you didn't learn the lesson uh, of your father, Nebuchadnezzar. And you've made this, uh, the same error of lifting yourself up against the Lord. So here's, here he goes. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Daniel knows full well that he is talking to a king who says Marduk is God. He's talking to a room of people who have... Uh, who have no belief in and have just, in fact, just um, desecrated the, the, the vessels of God, the holy vessels of the Most High God. So he's talking to a bunch of unbelievers, and he asserts, O King, the Most High God. That's an assertion. He is not saying, Belshazzar, um, I serve you know, Yahweh, and you sure serve Marduk, and that works for you, and this works for me. This is not, Daniel is no pluralist. Daniel believes there is a most high God, and all the other gods are just false gods. And he just steps into the room and asserts the truth. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, and greatness, and glory, and majesty. Where did Nebuchadnezzar's power come from? Not Marduk, it came from the most high God. And because of the greatness he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. Whom he would, he humbled. God gave Nebuchadnezzar his position and his power, his glory, everything he had. Verse 20, but when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly... He was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. God lifted him up, but Nebuchadnezzar, uh, unfortunately, didn't honor God, but was arrogant, and so God brought him lower, uh, down and took it, his glory from him. This, this is what we talked about last week in chapter 4. Neb, uh, Daniel's rehearsing that story. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he, 
until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. So, God gave Nebuchadnezzar all this stuff. Nebuchadnezzar was proud. God humbled him until he humbled himself before God. Verse 22. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Be Although you knew all this, I want you to underline that in your mind. So, Daniel was not telling Belshazzar a story he didn't already know. He'd been taught this. Maybe the queen mother had taught him. Maybe Nebuchadnezzar himself had taught Belshazzar. So, Belshazzar knew the gospel, right? He knew biblical truth, and yet he rejected it for himself. Because, you know, head knowledge does nothing for you. Even the demons believe, and they just shudder. It doesn't save them. They know the truth better than you and I know the truth. No, he didn't do what you're supposed to do, which is humble yourself before the truth. Believe it. Obey it. Walk in it. Live your life in light of it. Belshazzar knew what had happened to his father Nebuchadnezzar, and he just said, that's for Nebuchadnezzar. That worked for dad or grandpa or whoever. I don't need, I don't need that. I'm not going to humble myself before God. And so I actually, I actually look at this and I think, who, who is the most direct application of this story? Who, to whom does this story most directly apply? I think it's the person who grew up in the church and then says, nah, and walks away. So, they learned. They'd been taught. They know. And then they say, nah, that's not for me. I don't need that. And they walk away. That's Belshazzar. And so, see, Belshazzar, yeah, he'd heard from, he'd heard from Nebuchadnezzar, maybe the queen mother. He'd heard the stories, but, then there, but there were other voices talking to him. And there were other voices saying, no, 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 no. That's just one interpretation. And that's, that's Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he went crazy and he's trying to come up with a, or an explanation. But listen, we're the Babylonians. We're the mightiest. How did we get here? We've been, we've been worshiping Marduk. We've been living according to these values. Just do what we've always done. Go, go with that reality. Live out of that worldview and that perspective, and you'll be fine. And it doesn't require, right? It doesn't require that you uh, obey God and live your life according to his value. You, you can still just do what you want to do and, you know, throw a bone to Marduk periodically. And so Belshazzar said, yeah, I'm going to live out of that reality. And here in our country, evolutionary biology hey, you don't have to believe the Bible because you can believe the story uh, that evolutionary biology presents. There's no God. Everything that's here can be explained by having just spontaneous, random, 
through natural selection. That's how we got it. There's no God you have to answer to someday. There's no God you're beholden to. It's all about you. You just came. You just came. And so morality is just a social construct. Uh, but you, you know, Nietzsche, you can be an uberman and rise above it and just live according to your own ways and will. And, and for a lot of people, are like, yeah, that's the reality I want to live out of. I don't want to have to live out of the reality of the Bible. Or there's this new age spirituality. Hey, yeah, be a spiritual person. But, but, but the spiritual realm is, is impersonal and you can manipulate it and control it through crystals and chants and meditation. And, or there are all kinds of other religious, religious worldviews you can live out of. Buddhism and Islam and Hinduism and on and on it goes, right? And so there's... Americans are sitting before this smorgasbord of worldviews and they pick and choose the one that they want to live by. But what does Daniel assert? What does the Bible assert? What did Jesus assert? There is a most high God. It's not a plural. There is, there is reality and then everything else. And you can live out of a lie, but it'll catch up to you. You can live out of a lie, but you're going to have, you're not going to have the abundant life that God wants you to have. And you're certainly not going to have eternal life. Well, now we get to the actual message from God written on the wall, verse 24. Then from his presence the hand was sent. Why? Because, because you've lifted yourself up against God. Belshazzar, you haven't humbled yourself, you've lifted yourself. By the way, think about that. To be a person who lifts himself or herself up against God. Lifting yourself up against the Lord of heaven. What does that mean? It is not every atheist lifting herself up against God? Every agnostic, every person who chooses to follow a religion other than uh, Christianity, every, you know, on and on it goes. There are the vast majority of people that you and I know, that's true of them. They've lifted themselves up against the Most High God. Tragic. Okay, so verse 24. So because of that, from the presence from God's presence, the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. And this is the interpretation of the matter. By the way, it, it appears that these were, this was Aramaic, so it's kind of perplexing why the wise men couldn't figure out. And so we don't know. Maybe it was, you know, written a certain way, no vowels and all strung together. Maybe, maybe it was in some kind of a code. We don't know. But God gave... Daniel, the interpretation. So here's the interpretation of the matter. Mine. This is what that means. God has numbered the days of your kingdom, brought it to an end. Numbered. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez. 
Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Game over for you, Belshazzar. It's game over for you, and it's game over for the, for the entire Babylonian Empire. Now, I want to look at Tekel, because uh, we don't want Tekel happening to us. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Uh, so I used the scale illustration, right? Uh, God has weighed you, Belshazzar, and he's found you wanting, a lightweight, <laughs> of no significance in his eyes. You've wasted your life. You squandered the position and the power and the influence and the resources that I gave you. You have nothing to show for your life, so I'm taking it back from you. Now, this is a shocking story because, but here's, it's a shocking story, but part of the reason it's shocking is because it happened this side of eternity. And so we get a, we get a glimpse, but here's what you need to understand. In this story, we are getting a glimpse of what's coming for all of us. See, the Bible's very clear. There is coming a day of judgment, the day of the Lord. It's appointed unto man once to die, Hebrews 12, and after this, the judgment. Revelation 20 talks about that day when, you know, all our whole life will be laid open like, like a book, and God will weigh it. So you, your life, and how you lived your life will be weighed in God's balances. And what will be the verdict? That's coming for you. That's coming for me. And for Belshazzar, he was found wanting. And his life was taken from him that very night. Now the Bible, the Bible says this. The Bible says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. The clear testimony of the Bible is the way you have lived your life at the end of the days, God will, find, will declare wanting. The way I've lived my life, at the end of the days, God's going to say wanting. That's the verdict. The verdict, if left to ourselves and, and our own deeds, the verdict will be depart to hell, away from me. I'm a holy God and you're not. That's the reality. But into that reality enters the good news, the gospel, the Christian message. And the message is God did not leave us to ourselves because God loved us. He loves us. And He loves us so much that He sent Jesus, His only begotten Son, from heaven to earth to live the life that you and I couldn't live. Jesus alone lived a righteous life that pleased the Father. And those of us who repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ is credited to us. We get to walk around clothed in the righteousness of Christ and therefore righteous in the eyes of God. And what do we do with our sins? Well, Jesus died on the cross and his death substituted for us. He paid the penalty for our sins. By his stripes, we are healed. He died so we don't have to die. And so our sins can, are atoned for when we 
are united with Christ by faith. And they are taken away as far as the east is from the west, and they're remembered no more. And so you who have lived a life that God will declare wanting, well, at the end of the day, when you stand before God, he's going to say, come, because you're clothed in the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ, in whom there's no, no spot, no fault, come. Your sins, they've been paid for, come and be with me forever and ever. And I said this last week, the way to humble yourself before God in the New Testament era, in the Christian era, is to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where it all starts. And you are, maintain, you are lifting yourself up against the Lord when you say, I'll, I'll just change my life and I'll be better and I'll earn God's love and favor. Or you say, I need more evidence before I believe. Or whatever else it is. You're lifting yourself up against God. Because did you know the gospel is not something that's... The Bible doesn't really speak of it as being offered. It's commanded. And God commands everyone, everyone, everywhere to repent and believe in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a command from the Creator, God. Repent of your sins and put your faith in my Son, Jesus, and make Him Lord of your life. That's how you humble yourself. That's how we humble ourselves today. So I don't know where you are spiritually. You do. Is that how you need to humble yourself before God right now. Let's pray. Lord, we love the stories of the Bible. You've, you have put them there so that we can learn and we can change. Lord, we admire Daniel in his life of faithfulness to you. Even in, in the midst of a pagan culture, he he kept laser-focused on the true God. And Lord, we want to learn from Belshazzar's mistake. Lord, we want to learn from Belshazzar. We, we don't want to lift ourselves up against you, Lord. We want to humble ourselves so that we can find your mercy and your forgiveness and your grace, Lord. We commit to that in Jesus' name. Amen. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, verse 30. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old.